it's an embarrassment of riches. You know what I mean? Like I could, I could just cut together stuff from Mando and be super proud, but yeah. I certainly want to put stuff on there from Rango and Davy Jones and Pacific Rim and you know Warcraft. The orcs we did for Warcraft, I'm super proud of. It was great. I might even put on, I might even put on a shot from Toy Story. I did. There's a shot, and I'm still pretty happy with with the potato head. And he says, "Hey, look, I'm Picasso." And yeah, he says, oh, I don't get it. And, and that was one of the first shots I did there. I might put that on just to lead off, just to tickle people. But um, it's funny, I was watching that. That's like there's a handful of quite edgy jokes <laughs> in that that I imagine just got through, but only just. Um, I rewatched it recently because the 25th anniversary and. I think one of the lines that made me laugh the loudest, and I'm not sure that it did back in the day, and it might have made me chuckle, but for some reason it really made me laugh now is when um, Buzz first shows up and everyone's really impressed with him, and they cut to Bo Peep, and she says, I found my movie, buddy. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks so much for downloading this podcast. I'm John Gill, and this is On The Fly. This episode is the second and final part of my chat with Hal Hickel. Hal is an animation supervisor at Hollywood visual effects studio Industrial Light and Magic. And in part one, you hear about his journey to ILM via CalArts, Wilvington Studio, and Pixar. Very grateful to Hal for his time and what a lot of time at that. We chatted for just over two and a half hours. And in this episode, we get into the role of the animation supervisor as well as how the shot design in The Mandalorian was based on shots from the original Star Wars trilogy and more. However, we start with Yoda and the evolution of the 80s puppet to the digital bouncing frog of the prequels. Please subscribe to On The Fly to make sure you never miss an episode. I hope this podcast is worth your time and if it is, please remember and share with people. The best recommendation is a personal one. So thanks again for listening. This is On The Fly with John Gill and Hal Hickel. Dial up the pod. We actually did two digital Yoda shots in Phantom Menace right at the very end of the film. The um, They needed a shot of him talking to Obi-Wan in this room and it's kind of a high angle and Yoda's sort of walking across the room as he's talking to Obi-Wan who's kneeling mm-hmm. is after Qui-Gon has died. It's kind of the coda of the film. And, um, and I don't know whether the shot itself was a late addition or they just, I don't know how it came to be that it was CG, but we had a, a digi-double for Yoda that wasn't meant to be seen close up and we were able to use it for that shot. And so I got to animate that shot. So I got to oh, do wow. the CG Yoda shot. And then Linda Bell animated a shot of Yoda in Qui-Gon's funeral. They're panning across everyone's faces as the funeral pyre is burning and Yoda is tucked away in, in that scene somewhere. And so he's digital there because again, I think, again, it was not an afterthought, but something changed in the way that was staged where they decided, oh, we need to have Yoda in here. Um, so those were the first two shots. So then between Phantom Menace and uh, Attack of the Clones, George wanted us to look into just doing Yoda CG all the time. So Rob put together a little team. It was Linda and, and Steve Rollins and I, I think just the three of us. And we each took a shot or two from Empire Strikes Back 
and copied it using, again, just the kind of simple CG Yoda we had at the time. A whole new asset was being created for the films with much finer texture and everything, but this is what we had. And, um, and we each took a stab at, uh, and so I, I did a couple of shots of Yoda at the swamp. I think around the time when he lifts the X-Wing out of the swamp in, in Empire. And, um, uh, and that was our sort of proof of concept. But we had, I, I bring this up because you were talking about his ears. We had lots of conversations about, you know, should the, should the um, animation controls be based on how uh, Frank Oz's hand was inside the puppet? And we decided not to do that. We gave him sort of no a normal face rig like you do for a human in terms of how we move the mouth and everything. Um, but we did try to mimic the way obviously the puppet moves. We didn't want it to be dramatically different. Um, and then we talked about the ears and, you know, they need to have the rubber and they have that vibration, especially way out the tips. And when, at some point, um, when we were midway through Attack of the Clones and we had animation shots, they were recording some new dialogue with Frank Oz. And I think Rob showed him some of the early work, the CG work on Yoda. <laughs> and he said, oh my God, we tried so hard to get the, take the wiggle out of his ears yes. <laughs> you're stiff enough he's like you've even put all our defects in there so he like that was her rob relayed that back to the animators and we're all very tickled to hear that you know and there's an argument i love the puppet I'm, I'm glad george for instance didn't when he did a special edition didn't at some point revisit empire and replace the puppet the puppet's wonderful frank oz's work not to mention the fabricator people who fabricated the puppet and all that yeah all their hard work but it was really fun to kind of go on that, embark on that adventure on Attack of the Clones and do do Yoda um, CG and all that. It was yeah. Fun. Until until you saw it, you could never imagine what a lightsaber battle with Yoda would be like. And then when oh, yeah. it done, it just it just seemed to make perfect sense. Of course, he's going to bounce off the walls. Uh, <laughs> but we were it, all we were all against it. We we all the animators we thought that. It should be like Saruman and and um, Gandalf and, and Saruman, you know, yeah. these two wizards using the Force, you know. And George is like, no, 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 I want it. He's leaping around like a little frog. He's jumping and flipping, and we were like, what? no, that. And you know what? George is so right. I mean, yeah. it. The audience just loves that scene. Like they just it comes a lot, especially the little moment where he. Pulls his robe open and takes out his little tiny lights. I mean, God, and he doesn't. He doesn't even take it. He just wheels it into his hand, which was just <laughs> absolute genius. Because you know, yeah, because then you start to question that. why. Why does he have to do anything? Why has he even got a stick? <laughs> but it's just. It's just that sort of. You instantly appreciate that it's just. He's not wasting anything either. Yeah. Yeah. And it's almost yeah, like yeah. that force will of the, the say that's just him warming up. Congratulations, first of all, on having a Wikipedia page. But one <laughs> of the things I read in that Wikipedia page was um, it's and it's just a sentence, I think. So I don't know who wrote unless you wrote your own Wikipedia page, no, in which case no, that's good to know. Good to know. Yeah. Um, it says um, working at Pixar, but he is about Phantom Menace and decides to get a transfer to ILM. <laughs> I'm sure it was a lot more involved in that, but that it just you just come across as spoiled in that <laughs> sentence because you know it's like it's not like mm, I'm working at McDonald's, I'd rather, rather we work in a Burger King. 
Yeah. Um, no, I, I, you know, by that point, Pixar and ILM was completely separate companies and had been for 10 years. And so I had to apply like anybody else. And, but by then I had a, my demo reel now had, you know, shots from Toy Story on it. So I, at least I could say, yes, I, I can animate in the computer, which I wasn't able to say before I worked at Pixar. So I, you know, sent a reel and a resume over and waited for a call and got a call, went over and interviewed and waited to hear back. And, you know, the whole, it was not a, not a transfer. Well, yeah. we were just across, we were, it was like 10 minute drive between the two places. Uh, right. Pixar was in Point Richmond and Islands in San Rafael. So um, I was as close as I'd ever been in my whole life to being at ILM, but wasn't yet there. And, and so it felt like the right time. Not to skip over Rogue One, I traumatized my kids because we all went to see it. They were very excited to see something that was close. They grew up watching those. So I took them to see Rogue One. So this is going to be amazing because it's set just before. And and, and I, but I, I never said any more than that. And it never occurred to them that all these characters we never see again. (laughs) <laughs> so at the end they were both completely devastated so they're like so so everyone dies then and i was like oh had that not occurred to you so they've never ever wanted to see it again it's just it's you know they, they were just traumatized by it but that to, that aside i think it's the best one outside of the original trilogy yeah i mean i'm again i feel super grateful enormously lucky because the the two had a no connection to any of this. The two projects I would have wanted to have worked on, I got to end up working on. One was Rogue One, and the other is Mandalorian. And and in large part because they both are, you know, right in the sort sort of surrounding the original trilogy timeline, and so they have all the look and feel and nostalgia of, of the original films. Um, you know, I love working on the prequels, and I'm I'm proud of that work and everything. But the kid in me is always going to be most connected to you know, the, the original trilogy. And so uh, I feel super lucky. And again, John Noel and I, you know, after Pirates, we've now worked on, I don't know, six or seven films together and we're good friends and everything. And so Rogue One was his idea. He, he pitched this film yeah, yeah. Kennedy. And so it was, you know, exciting that like one of our own was responsible for this. And and as soon as he got the go ahead, he, you know, he said, I want, you know, do you want to work on it? I'm like, of course, <laughs> are you kidding? <laughs> and so, you know, it was a great project for both of us. So for a lot of personal reasons, I was really happy to be on it, but also just in, in all the geeky Star Wars ways that just, I couldn't have been more thrilled. And that was another example because when, uh, you know, George sold the studio and then they announced they were going to be making, you know, another trilogy of, of Star Wars films, I immediately raised my hand and, and, and told everyone who'd listen, I got to be on that I want to work on the next Star Wars. And and then it was announced that JJ was going to do Force Awakens. And JJ had already worked with what, what frequently happens with directors who have worked with ILM is that, you know, they develop an, a connection with a certain team. And so they JJ had worked with Roger Guyette as a visual effects supervisor and Paul Cavanaugh as an animation supervisor on several past projects, Super 8 and Star Trek and so forth. And so I knew as soon as they announced JJ, it was going to be Roger and Cav. Um, and Paul Kavanaugh on the project and I was, was like ah you know <laughs> but then again um, then John popped up with his project and it got greenlit and I ended up doing that instead yeah and I you know I couldn't be happier it's just it was much it was even more I would have been super happy to work on Force Awakens or Rise of Skywalker or any of them but from completely looking at it objectively our Rogue One was really more my sweet spot and it's fortunate that 
that it worked out. And same with Mando. It's uh, it's just, you know, everything about it, the whole feel of it um, is really just what I love about Star Wars. So I wondered if you could if you could sort of um, give us a potted sort of view of your role. So from, you know, you get the script. Yeah. What what what's your what do you what do you do? So at ILM, and it's similar with little variations and stuff at, at other big visual effects companies, but um, the creative leadership for any visual effects project is a visual effects supervisor. And they put their eye to every visual effects shot on the show and work with the director. If the show has a big component of creature character kind of animation, then there'll be somebody like me on the project, an animation supervisor. And in ILM, those two people... Uh, while the visual effects supervisor is always kind of top dog, if you will, because again, they have to put their eye to every visual effects shot, whereas an anim soup really only has to worry about shots that have creatures and characters in them. They form the kind of creative leadership uh, of a big visual effects project. And then as well, the visual effects producer. So the three of them form kind of the leadership of this show. And our job early on is to meet with um, the director, if they're on board yet, sometimes it's the studio we're meeting with or a producer who has a project that they're trying to get greenlit and they don't have a director yet. But usually there's a director. By the time we come on, usually there's a director attached. It's probably at a studio and we're meeting with them about the project, uh, reading the script, doing breakdowns, bidding to figure out what we think it'll cost and how it should be done. And then hopefully that gets us to an award. But for us, creative folks like visual effects soup and anim soup those early days are about figuring out what the director is going for what they want and coming up with strategies for doing it and trying to engage with them um in a way that you know gets them excited about doing the project with us and you know so it sounds like we understand what they want <clears throat> and then once the project's awarded then you know it, it it's it, you know we're involved all the way through in pre-production and we're involved with planning how stuff should be shot that we're going to be putting our work into later. Then when it's being shot, we're on set advising. Now the visual effects supervisor is usually on set through the whole run of, of uh, shooting. Animation soups like myself generally come in and out, come in for a week, come back, come in for another couple of weeks, come back for really key scenes that are going to have, you know, this is the sequence where the giant robot chases the people. Okay. So I'll come in and I'll be there for the, five days it takes to shoot that scene. And generally on when I'm on set, especially if it's a director I've never worked with before, job number one for me is to shut up and hang around and listen as much as possible um, and try and float around the area of the director without being creepy. <laughs> you know, I mean, I'll have introduced myself. They know why I'm there. I'm not some stranger that they're like, who's that guy? But I'm trying to kind of eavesdrop on conversations they have with their cinematographer, with their actors, with you know other members of the crew, their AD. So I can kind of get an idea of what their sense of humor is, what their vocabulary is, what they like and don't like, um, how they make decisions. Um, and so I can be useful. And, and I, so I try to stay out of the way, but be close enough to the action that when I see something going south or going wrong, I can kind of step in and say, you know, if you just, we just did this a little differently, I think you'll still get what you're after, but it's going to make our life a lot easier at the other end, or it's going to be a lot more effective. And a, a simple example of that is, uh, you know, on the Pirates of the Caribbean films, we had Bill Nighy playing Davy Jones, and he's on set in an on-set motion capture suit 
acting against the, the, the other actors. And he might have a scene where he's, he's sort of toe to toe with, with Jack Sparrow and they're nose to nose. And I might lean into Gore and say, well, now remember Davy's got this big wide brim pirate hat on that we're going to need to account for. And so then Gore would get up from his chair and go whisper in Bill's ear, you know, give him that little bit of, you know, take a half step back because we're going to need to account for, you know, I wouldn't approach the actor with that. Um, but I mentioned to Gore. So those are things we kind of advise on. Um, now, later in the process, I might approach Bill directly and say, hey, you know, think about this because remember, Davey has a big crab claw in this hand or whatever. But mostly I leave that relationship to the director and the actor and I talk to the director. But anyway, so we, we advise in that way all the way through. And could, all kinds of different things could come up. Props may come over to us and say, hey, we know you guys are doing this um, CG tentacle in this scene. What do you want us to rig up to, or stunts or whoever, or, or physical effects on set? What do you guys want us to rig up to pull on the thing that the tentacle's grabbing? How do you want to do that? And, you know, we confer with them and discuss and so forth. Um, and then once we get into post-production, you know, the director takes a, and, their, and his, editor, his or her editor takes a pass at the um, uh, cutting the scene. They, they do a turnover with us where they run through the scene and uh, director explains, you know, I want the dinosaur here, chasing these people there, and then it crashes into this car. And uh, we, ch we changed this whole idea and we moved all these shots around so it's not the same idea anymore. So we're gonna have to figure out a way to make this work, blah, blah, blah. Give, they give us the turnover. I go to my animation team, I work with my uh, coordinator and with production generally closely to figure out, you know, when when does this animation sequence go into production? What team of animators is gonna work on it? Which animators get which shots? And that's sort of a matter of casting like you would with an actor where you're um, sort of, you know, this animator is really good with action. This animator is really good with humor, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. At the same time, you don't wanna pigeonhole people. People wanna stretch and learn new things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, assigned shots, they I encourage the animators to, if I've given them four shots, don't spend those first few days getting one of them really polished and leave the others sitting. Try and work them all up in a rough form together. We'll show them all, you know, show them all to me in that form. When I, hopefully we can get the whole sequence roughed into a certain level together. And then when it reaches a certain stage, I'll show it to the director. If the director is a director who doesn't mind having a lot of crew in reviews, then we'll invite all the animators in to the review so they can hear the feedback directly from the from the director. Um, some directors prefer to have a smaller group so they can focus and and we can't do that, but most of them really like to get to know the crew. They like having the crew dailies. Um, uh, you know, we get feedback from the director that gets fed back to the animators and we go through that loop until we get to a final and that's kind of the job. Um, I think, again, I think one of my favorite parts of that is the psychological angle of, of uh, particularly with new directors, figuring out what they're after and, and what tickles them and what annoys them. And Was there anything particular that you learned as an animator from your animation supervisors that stuck with you to, to what, oh, how, you, oh, how yeah. you manage things now? Rob Coleman, uh, the, the, the anim soup on the, um, well, let me start with Randy Dutra. So when I started at ILM, well, I, I should go back to Pixar actually. Because prior to Pixar, there were people at, at Will Vinton's that I learned from enormously, people like Barry Bruce, Bill Feasterman, the people who were sort of the senior directing animators at, at Vinton's at the time. I learned a ton from them, as I did from the other animators there. That didn't give me the skill set of sort of the 
the visual effects anim soup. I didn't start to get that really to see how that job was done until I was at ILM. Although again, at Pixar, again, I learned tons of stuff from, you know, Pete Doctor and Ash Brannon and Rich Quaid, the, the sort of you know, Glenn McQueen, uh, Rex uh, Grignon, these sort of, you know, senior uh, big brothers to me at, um, at Pixar. But again, that was more about the craft of animation, um, not about how to be a anim soup. So it wasn't until I got to ILM that I could really see that job in action. And so my first project there was the second Jurassic Park and Randy Dutra was the anim soup. And Randy, I think, understands more about animal locomotion than anybody on earth. He's just got an amazing laser eye for that and lots of other skills as well. But so I learned a lot from him listening to how he gave feedback. But the person who really taught me how to be an anim soup was Rob Coleman, who was the anim director on the three prequels. Rob and I hit it off really early on and he, he bumped me up from animator to lead animator over the course of Phantom Menace. And I really paid attention to how he, both how he spoke to the crew, but also how he presented the animation to George. Hmm. And I would pester him with questions about it. And he was very generous with his advice and time and, and everything. And um, so I learned a ton. And then right after Phantom Menace was when I got my first uh, shot at being an anim soup. And I just would bug Rob all the time with questions. <laughs> like, how do I do this? And what do I, you know, production says this, what do I, you know, how should I respond? And um, so he was really my mentor. I feel like everything, any good lessons I, I have to impart on being an anim soup, I, I learned first from, from Rob. And then when I came back onto Attack of the Clones as, a, as an anim soup under Rob, you know, one of the great things he did was he could have been a gatekeeper uh, so he had, we had two anim soups under Rob on that it was Chris Armstrong and I, and Rob could have said, you know, you show your stuff to me, I'll show it to George, but he didn't. And he said, no, no, you guys are going to show your sequences to George. And at that time, just physically, the way the production was set up, we were often doing our animation reviews, not in a big viewing theater where the main visual, the finished visual effect shots were looked at and critiqued, but in kind of a small office with a, with a, a good sized monitor, but it was still, these were still CRTs. They weren't flat screens. So it wasn't yeah, that yeah. big. So I'm just sitting elbow to elbow with George at a little desk, the keyboard in front of me showing the shots, which was super nerve wracking, but, yeah. um, but I'll forever be grateful to Rob because, you know, he pushed Chris and I in there to do that. And, and that was my one opportunity. I didn't end up working on the third um, prequel because I was working on the Pirates film. So, Attack of the Clones was my one uh, opportunity to really just work directly with George, which had you know been a childhood dream of mine. So, right. um, but anyway, so I I learned tons of stuff from from Rob about casting shots to animators, giving animators uh, enough rope to hang themselves, so to speak, or, or you know uh, basically don't give them so much direction that they feel like they're just executing this list of things you gave them. Sort of give them the broad strokes, let them have authorship and bring ideas to the table. Make sure those ideas get a chance with the director. Um, if the director loves those ideas, take credit for them. No, <laughs> give credit to the animator. Um, and when they don't work out, you know, own up to it. Say, ah, you know what, George, that was that was actually my idea. I kind of directed him to do this, yeah. but that's fine. We'll, we'll steer back. Um, be transparent that way. Um, give the crew um, a good feeling for what the 
dynamics of the production are, why, why they're being asked to do a certain thing, if it's, it may, especially when it seems like maybe it's a bit crazy, but also shield them from a lot of the BS that they don't really need to be bothered by and stressed out by on a production that you may be privy to as, as a supervisor. I'll mention this as well. There's a tendency for creatives in film, young creatives especially, to sometimes see the production side as you know the bean counters, the suits, at odds with the creative vision, and that's that's a really bad take on that, um, and and destructive. Now, to be sure, you're going to bump into people on both the creative and the production side in your career that you disagree with and don't like how they're conducting themselves themselves. But I found it enormously useful and satisfying to partner with production. Um, and be a partner to what they're trying to achieve in terms of budget and schedule and everything, rather than an enemy to it or feeling like they're somehow the enemy of creativity because they're not. Um, and so in that way, you know, your best experiences are going to be with producers who are creative people. And so sometimes they're going to have thoughts and dailies and it's useful to listen to them. You know, you don't always want to be like, oh, oh, that's the producer chipping in again. It's not, you know, that's a bad attitude to have. Um, it's a collaborative thing. There's going to be a lot of voices in the room and you have to get used to that. And you, it's useful to figure out how to navigate that. How has the pandemic uh, impacted on, say, something like the, the new Mandalorian season? Not at all. No. Okay. <laughs> no, it was massive. We were super lucky in that we finished shooting uh, like two weeks before the lockdown in California. So we were done shooting. It would have been a massive headache if we had, had we not been, because it took sort of the whole following spring and summer for everyone to figure out how to get back to shooting in the fall, even though we're still obviously in the throes of the pandemic. So we were finished shooting. And so we all kind of went home and started working from home and everything became a Zoom call. And that has been challenging, but I have to actually say I'm, I'm super impressed with ILM as a company because we... You know, we obviously had the technical infrastructure for some people to work from home, but it was more of an exception. <clears throat> Most people were there in the studio every day. And if people were working from home, it was for some special reason. They were, you know, they had a new kid or, or something uh, like that. Suddenly we had to send everybody home and have everybody hitting the network from a remote location. And there were a few bumps that first week, but man, our, our IT group and our engineer, everybody really knocked it out of the park. I mean, I just, I've been, I continue to be super impressed. So pretty quickly, we all got into a groove and, you know, we did all our animation and visual effects reviews from home and it's been... I, I mean, I imagine some people have got really nice computers at home, but the security and everything as well. Yeah, that's a big aspect of it. Uh, making sure everyone's set up is secure and, and making sure people have the tools they need if they don't have a computer that's adequate for their, what they, job they particularly do. Yeah. Um, to allow them to do it at home, getting that worked out. There's been all kinds of logistical uh, things to work out, but uh, yeah, somehow we've, we've managed to do it. <laughs> and I'm gonna put, I'll put a link in the in the notes because I watched the um, the Adam the uh, tested episode with Adam Savage recently, where he was speaking to John Knoll, um, the visual effects supervisor, and model maker John Goodson. Yeah. How they did some of the shots. Now, I, 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 I don't know if I picked it up right, but some of those shots were done in John Knoll's garage. <laughs> sort of. He, so... Um, it's quite a big garage, but... Yeah, so we had, we had um, 
you know, we have this ship, the Razor Crest, which is obviously big, a big part of the series and a big part of who Mando is. And um, um, part we were well into production and we had even some final shots of the CG version of the ship, flybys and things. But we continued to talk in visual effects reviews about the look of the ship because the thing is, if it had been a ship with a finish, a paint job similar to the Falcon, that kind of matte painting with oil streaks and things on it, we could nail that no problem in CG. We know what that looks like. We've done enough, we've done enough shots of the CG Falcon and other ships, sort of like the Star Destroyers and things that um, you know we can we can nail that look. But the 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 crest has a different look. It's not as shiny as Padme's chrome ship from the prequels. It's not a matte finish like the Falcon. It's a kind of a new thing. And so John was like, well, what if we built a model as a lighting reference? We'll learn things from it. You know, just the process of building a model and figuring out how you're going to paint it, what materials you're going to use, and how you do those things. You just sort of arrive at something. It's an organic process. And and you know, not to say there aren't organic processes like that in CG, there certainly are, but it's just a different one in which you can learn more things. So that, all right, let's do that. And so John Goodson was set to building a two foot miniature. And then along the way, I think we're probably even before John started building it, we, we expanded that further because I was already doing a deep dive into the um, original trilogy spaceship, spaceship shots and what makes them feel like they do, particularly in terms of motion, um, but also lighting and everything else, but mainly in terms of the, the movement through frame and why do they have this singular feel. And it had to do with a bunch of things. Part, a lot of it is specific creative decisions made at the time of the original trilogy. Um, one of them being, you know, George famously, since they didn't have previs back then, rather than using storyboards exclusively for planning out, for instance, the big um, battle over the Death Star at the end of the film, he used clips from famous World War II aerial dogfighting movies like Dam Busters, Battle of Britain, et cetera. And a lot of those shots feature actual footage of airplanes. And when you're out shooting in it, an airplane from another airplane, usually on a long lens, and you're kind of tracking the aircraft across the sky. So the, the ship is, itself isn't moving through frame a lot, but the background is whooshing past very dynamically. Things like that informed the look of the shots in, in Star Wars. And then as well, you had the whole area of the technological limitations at the time. For instance, the Falcon on the first Star Wars film is quite a large model, it's five or six feet long. So it couldn't do a lot of really acrobatic stuff. Now they built a smaller version of the Falcon for Empire. And so then it gets very twirly as it's going through the asteroid field and so forth. But on Star Wars, the first Star Wars film, you know, it typically kind of comes at us and flies by camera or comes from behind us and flies past camera, or we track with it. You don't have a lot of shots of it coming from infinity and then we whip pan with it and it, and it recedes in fact, you don't have any shots like that in, in the first Star Wars. But that had to do with the fact that the camera itself was on a 40 foot track and you know, there was only so much room in the studio from this rather large model and, and all those things inform the look of it as well. So I had done this deep get dive far enough away from the model to do that. Yeah, exactly. And if you wanted to do a flyby, you had to, because I was talking to this guy, Pete Dalton, who was an animator at, at ILM, but who had started back on Jedi as a motion control operator. And he was saying, if you wanted to do a flyby because of the length of the track limitation, you had to sort of orient the model toward camera. And as the camera moves towards it, you rotate it around. And then as it's facing away, you boomerang the camera back again to give the impression oh, right. of the ship coming a whip pan. He said, but it was really hard to do. And the shots always had a little bit of a weird kind of woo to them. 
Um, so then we started to talk about, well, you know, it'd be kind of cool is if we actually shot this motion control and gave ourselves those same limitations. Now, to be sure, we could have done that in CG. And in a way we did, because once we decided to go down that path, John Knoll designed a, a small motion control system, because honestly that, well, number one, I think he wanted to do it. That's just how John is. <laughs> yeah. um, but it was also, and it being cheaper for him to kind of just garage bash this thing together than to go to one of the, because we don't have a big model shop anymore and shooting stages. Um, we're all CG now. So to do that, we would have had to go to an outside company to do, you know, hire them as a service to shoot the models and all that. And that we bid that out and it was expensive for what we needed on the show. Again, this is, you know, one component of a much larger visual effects project, kind of a little, almost a little side project, you know, it was being thought of. So we didn't want to spend a ton of money on it. Anyway, so John spec'd out his own little system using a lot of off the shelf parts. And then he was going to machine the parts that uh, he couldn't buy. And, um, and that's where his garage comes into play. He's got a machine shop in his garage. So he was building that motion control rig in his garage. We didn't shoot the shots there, but he was building uh, okay. it. Um, but before he built it, he built it in CG. I brought that CG model, like a, like a CAD, you know, design project, basically. I brought that into Maya. We rigged it up. And so I designed the shots in Maya using the CG version of the motion control rig so that I knew I wasn't exceeding the limits of the rig on a given lens. And we could really, you know, it's what previous companies do when they're put, they plan shots. They might have a CG model of a techno crane or something so they can give a director a real, a very realistic preview of the kind of shot he can actually, he or she can actually get on a set with that particular piece of equipment. Yeah. That's essentially what I was doing, but also informed by the aesthetic of the original trilogy. Yeah. Um, so I designed all the razor crest shots that we were going to do in, in motion control uh, in Maya using this CG version of the motion control rig and the CG version of the, the razor crest. And then those animation curves were handed off to John and, and he plugged them into his motion control rig to get the same camera move. And so we had, you know, hopefully it has, it, it evokes the same vibe as the, um, as the original trilogy. Now, again, we could have stopped with just designing the shots with the CG version of the motion control rig to give us those limitations, but still rendered the shot in CG and comped it in CG and not gone all, all the way to building an actual motion control rig and shooting an actual model. But, you know, we all kind of wanted to just follow that path all the way down because all along the way there are compromises and compromises that lead you to different creative choices yeah. that sort of nudge the work one way and another to a result that, you know, you wouldn't have gotten the other way. Um, whether it's better or not is, is a sort of subjective argument, but it's certainly different and it and unique things come out of that whole process, process of building the model where John Goodson had to figure out that weird sort of scuffed aluminum finish and he tried a couple different things and then finally hit on something. And actually the model ended up looking different than the, than the CG asset we had at the time so then we had to modify the CG asset to adopt the stuff that came with the model because we liked it. You know, we liked yeah, it. Yeah. I wouldn't say happy accidents because it really came out of John's long experience with building models. But still, you know, at the beginning of building it, he didn't know exactly, yeah, I'm going to use this paint and this technique and this, that. He, he discovered things. He used aluminum foil and different kinds of things to get to the final look, trial and error. And then we got there. And so that informed it. And then some, likewise, when you animate something in Maya, and then you hand it off to the motion control crew 
which is John in this case, it's not a crew, it's just John. Yeah. But, you know, he gets there on the stage and he's like, oh, I'm gonna have to modify this move a little bit because I can't quite get as close to the model as you did and whatever, this, that, and the other, you get something that's just a little bit different. And so th those things all add up to a unique thing that you couldn't have gotten any other way. And There was something that you mentioned in the uh, gallery, Disney gallery, that you'd cut a reel together, which I think you've maybe just touched on, um, which first of all, sounds like a great thing to get paid to do, to just chop up, you know, the original trilogy to get a sort of a mood board thing. But was there anything else that you were cutting together to get the sort of flavor of the original trilogy? Um, no, that was the main project. So the first thing I did was I went through and I cut out every spaceship shot up to the space battle, because there's so many in the space battle that that's kind of its own thing. So all the shots of the Falcon or Star Destroyers, TIE Fighters, previous to that in the, in the whole film, and just cut them together in a reel with nothing else in between, no um, live, at, no, no other shots. Then, um, oh, and then maybe, maybe the TIE, when they escaped from the Death Star, the little TIE Fighter thing, I might've put slightly longer chunks because there were so many quick cuts in, in that. And then the space battle at the end was its own thing. And I largely just took that whole. I might, if there was some chunk where they cut away back to Yavin base for a little bit and we're talking, I might have lifted that out to just kind of keep it more concentrated on the spaceship shots. But mostly I kept that whole. And then I just would go through it and try and identify, you know, what, what, what was great. And, you know, I stole from some shots. There's a shot in, I forget which episode it's in, but there's a shot where you're, stars are rushing by sort of north to south in the frame and the and the razor crest comes in and you realize now we're above it looking down and then it as it we kind of tilt up with it so it ends up uh going away from us at the end of the shot and that was taken directly there's a shot of the falcon that's exactly like that and i yeah it's like we got to do a shot like this and um and there was a there's a pair of shots from empire where i didn't go all the way through all three films although i did look at all three films because for one thing the, the thing I mentioned earlier about whip pans, where a ship comes from far off and flies past us and goes away. We had a big discussion about, about it because I said, look, I looked through the original trilogy and there are almost no shots like that. Even, even in Empire and Jedi, which have much more dynamic uh, spaceship shots, there are very few shots like that. And we decided though that they're such nice looking shots. They feature the ship so well that we would allow ourselves to do that. But anyways, yeah. In researching that, one thing I did find was there would be pairs of shots, like in Empire, when Luke leaves Hoth, there's a pair of shots where he, we're on Hoth and we see his tiny little X-Wing coming at us and it whooshes right past the corner of frame and then it's cut to space and it comes from behind us over camera and, and jets away and it's, it's kind of a pair of shots so rather than whip panning with it, there's a cut in between. Yeah. And so that, I adopted that and I designed a number of pairs of shots that had that flavor. But then, like I said, we did allow ourselves to just have a, an actual whip pan shot here and there, actually a number of them. I mean, that's the other thing you find when you get into this is that there's only so many ways to approach a planet, to, to land yeah. a ship, have a ship yeah. take off. In fact, you know, I, I remember having conversations along the way about, do we need this shot? How many? <laughs> How many landing shots do we need? I, the first thing I animated on season one, animated myself, because I try to keep my hand in it a little bit, um, but usually it's at the beginning when things aren't too busy yet. And so the first thing I animated was um, Razor Crest landing on our, uh, 
Arvala, I think. Is it Arvala? Yeah. Quill's planet, where the blurgs are and all that. Yeah. Um, and so I animated that shot myself just to figure it out. Like, well, how does the Razor Crest land? What language are we using? And I looked a lot of footage of uh, like Chinook helicopters, those big double-bladed helicopters, because that was about the size of the crest. And um, so we came up with that language of sort of the back skids touching down first, and then the nose coming down second, and yeah. all that kind of thing. And of course, the miniature stuff, anytime you see the crest landing or taking off, it's CG because our miniature doesn't have working landing gear and all that. So that's a little yeah. too much to expect. It's cool. It just struck me that it's it's kind of like a throwback to, to George Lucas chopping up all that sort of that old sort of black and white footage to show what it's going to look like. And then you're chopping up his film to show what Mando's <laughs> going to look like. And yeah. um, what would be amongst your top five shots from your career that you would definitely be putting on your show reel? Um, as an animator, uh, th there's a few shots, though. Like the, the first shot in Rango, the very first shot of him close up like that, I animated. Um, so that would be on there for sure. And it'd probably even on a supervisor reel. Um, as a supervisor, um, boy, there's so, I mean, I've been so lucky. I, for sure, you know, from the first three Pirates films, uh, Rango, um, Pacific Rim, Iron Man, uh, Warcraft, and, you know, and, and Mando, bit, bits and pieces from Mando. So there's a lot there to choose from. I think the hardest part would be cutting it down to something that's manageable. Yeah. Because, <laughs> um, you know, I, I've been incredibly lucky with the projects I've been on, but also, you know, with the crews that I've had, the animators at ILM are fantastic. Animator, you know, we have five studios now all over the world. And so we've got this great international crew now to, to choose from and, and we could, you know, we're hiring great people from all over. Yeah. So the work, it's an embarrassment of riches. You know what I mean? Like I could, I could just cut together stuff from Mando and be super proud, but yeah. I certainly want to put stuff on there from Rango and Davy Jones and Pacific Rim and, you know, Warcraft, the orcs we did for Warcraft. I'm super proud of it. It's great. And, um, you know, and I could go all the way back to stuff from the prequels. Although I pro at this stage, I probably, well, I might, Give just a peek, just so people can kind of go. Oh, wow, this dude's really old. I might even put on. I might even put on a shot from Toy Story. I did. There's a shot, and I'm still pretty happy with with the potato head. And he says, "Hey, look, I'm Picasso." And yeah, I says, I don't get it. And, and that was one of the first shots I did there. I might put that on just to lead off, just to tickle people. But um, it's funny. I was watching that. That's that's got a couple. Like, there's a handful of quite edgy jokes <laughs> in that. That you know. I imagine just got through, but only just because. Um, <laughs> I rewatched it recently because the 25th anniversary. And I think one of the lines that made me laugh the loudest, and I'm not sure that it did back in the day. And it might've made me chuckle, but for some reason it really made me laugh now is when um, Buzz first shows up and everyone's really impressed with him. And they cut to Bo Peep and she says, I found my movie, buddy. That's <laughs> <laughs> yeah. the way she delivered. I was yeah. like, ooh, spicy. Yeah. That's, uh, yeah, it, that's funny. <laughs> um, it was funny because I, I asked my son. He's 14, and um, he caught up on Mando last week. He said, because uh, I said, well, so is there anything you'd want me to ask? And he was like, I just want to know how hard it was to do that dragon. And that dragon, that's that felt like... That was that's not the kind of level of effects you typically see in a TV show, and I know it's not your average TV show, but that yeah. was that was like there were some stunning shots in, in that. 
te technically I'm I'm not supposed to lift the curtain yet on season two stuff, even though it's uh, those things have already aired. It was super challenging. It was really tough. It was probably it was the single hardest thing to do uh, um, in the season, and from an animation standpoint, for sure. What's the one thing that you think is most misunderstood about animation, particularly by those who want to do it? Hmm. Well, with computer animation, uh, maybe the idea that that the technology is really important. I kind of don't think it is. People, I find some some young folks who are interested in computer animation get very wrapped up in being concerned that they don't know the right software or they don't have access to the right software or whatever. I would say the job of the animator really hasn't changed a whole lot um, in decades. Um, I, you know, the main, your main tool set is understanding how people and animals move, how people act and react, what, how emotions are expressed, that, that never changes. Those are the important things. You can learn to use a given piece of software relatively quickly, especially when you're young and your brain is still a sponge. People shouldn't get too hung up on the technology. You know, even stuff like the volume, which doesn't isn't directly tied to anim, at least yet, I would say. My, my job is still largely in the sort of traditional VFX post-production mode. The volume doesn't affect that too much, as amazing as it is. It affects a lot of other departments and filmmaking processes, but not my part of it so much yet. Um, you know, but even there, what the way that it really benefits everyone is in the same way that a really amazing set or location does. It just makes everybody feel immersed in where they are. So it's not. Yes, yes, there is a whiz-bang, amazing tech component of it to be excited about and interested in and to dig into, especially if you want to be on more the tech side. You want to be a programmer or an engineer who's creating things like that. Absolutely. But for animators and filmmakers, the, the, the bedrock creative tool set is still the same, you know, storytelling and actors and stories and narratives and, you know, all that stuff. People tend to get hung up on the technology, especially with regard to animation, but that's not where the magic is for sure. Yeah, I've, I've seen people do some incredible stuff with just little Lego, sort of oh, yeah. Technic Lego characters, but the, the, you know, the emotion that you can put into, I mean, even even the, the, the droid in uh, Rogue One, I mean, like with the limitations, with, with how, you know, is not the most articulate, um, yeah. And I know you sort of gave yourself that bit of leeway with the eyes, which from from the point of a robot makes no sense, but it, it just brings all that, you know, and you could think, well, maybe, you know, we do that, don't we? We do that. So it's not to say that, that you wouldn't do it. It's just, it doesn't yeah. form any other function other than how, how it emotes to the to the, the people in the surrounding and more important to the, the audience watching the film. But I think if you would want to shout about how good you were as an animator, you probably wouldn't limit yourself to a maquette that had that limited number of movements. And yet it was, it yeah. was like incredible. And it, you know, it's one of those great lessons of how, how much can you communicate with the least amount? Like, okay, we don't have facial expressions. You're not going to get eyebrows and a sad mouth and a happy mouth and everything else. You're, you're going to get this mask. Yeah. Sure. The eyes can move, but that's it. Yeah. But, you know, you look at C-3PO, he's completely successful because of Anthony, yeah. you know, brilliant Anthony Daniels and his, yeah. no expression there at all. He, his eyes don't even rotate. Yeah. Um, so we had that, you know, that gave us confidence. But yeah, no. And that's a great example of, of uh, you know, and the other thing, too, is 
for a long time as motion capture was in its ascendancy, you know, following sort of Lord of the Rings and other projects where it was really crucial. A lot of animators feared it. They thought that producers were going to see it as a shortcut to, to creating animation and use it for the wrong things. And I think that largely has not panned out. It's been used for the right things like Caesar and Planet of the Apes or Gollum or what have you, or Davy Jones. And it hasn't been used for things like dinosaurs or Bugs Bunny. Although we did actually, we have used a little bit of capture for some of the raptors in, in one of the Jurassic World uh, projects. I didn't work on that, but I discovered the first time I really started to deal with it. We used, we used it to um, a fair amount on the first Pirates film, but that was more action stuff, sword fighting pirates and all that. I didn't get into the acting side of it until we did Davy Jones. And I found that, okay, yeah, on the one hand, working with an actor who's providing a captured performance takes away some a bunch of creative decisions from the animators but at the same time you get a whole new experience where you're partnering with an actor to create an amazing character that's why i never got mad when you know there was a quote from andy circus where he described the 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 post-production uh process of transforming him into kong or Gollum or whatever as a kind of digital makeup and there were some folks in the digital effects community who kind of got all their nose wrinkled up about that because they felt like he was that that somehow was dismissive and i thought whoa no way if you're if you want to put me in the same world even on a the minorest level with someone like rick baker who does makeup does transform actors using makeup i'll take it you know that that's a, an awesome compliment and and i think that's how i meant it i mean i've never had a conversation with andy about it or anything but it never bothered me because I just thought, well, yeah, sure. I mean, makeup's an amazing art form and has an amazing history in films of transforming actors. So why would I not want to be likened to that? I suppose the, the, the fact that traditional animation, you record the dialogue first means even then you're, you're being, inf even if you're creating the Absolutely. character from scratch, you're still being informed by yeah. the attitude. And I love, I love those shots where they're, you know, you see Tom Hanks record the same line about 15 times, slightly different, you know, just so you've got your, your pick and you think, well, he could get his nose wrinkled by saying, well, you're just editing, you know, it's not even a performance. I'm just, yeah. you know, but it's, it's I, that's where the, the magic is, isn't it? Have you ever tried or have you ever um, embedded yourself in Star Wars lore by being an X-Wing pilot or something? Close. I think it's the third prequel, the one I didn't work on. I was busy on other stuff, but there are moments in all the prequels where you can spot ILMers because they need them for this, that, and the other. I, I can spot myself very, very tiny in the pod race in the audience. Then in um, the third one, uh, Revenge of the Sith, there's a shot of Mace Windu coming at camera and turning and going into the Senate, I guess. I think it's the Senate. And standing by the door is one of these blue guards with a blue helmet and a staff. And that's me. But it's the, the helmet style completely covers my face. So, um, but I knew somewhere or other word had gotten out. Oh, they're going to be shooting some eat some. And I put my name in. I was like, hey, if you're doing any more extra stuff, put me in. I'd love to. And so they're like, okay, well, we got this thing you want to do. I'm like, yeah. And I did, by the way, I did not shoot the scene with. <laughs> Sam Jackson. They had already shot his piece with a motion control camera. <clears throat> All I was doing was standing there with a motion control camera kind of coming at me 
and passing me by because the design was shot. And we did two versions. We did one where I just stood there and one where I did a little nod, right? And they, <laughs> uh, Pablo, uh, Pablo um, Hellman was the um, visual effects suit, and he chose the version with the, the nod and comped it into the shot. And I knew the shot was being shown to George <clears throat> on a given day in daily. So I kind of crept in the back of dailies and just to listen in. And I don't know why I was nervous. Cause I mean, I'm, just, <laughs> I'm probably just an extra, but I'm all like, and I kid you not, the shot comes up on the screen and, you know, back then it was still, um, George and the other effects groups all have little laser pointers, right? So they can point to stuff in the screen room. And the shot loops once and George puts his laser pointer right on me. And I'm like, God damn it. He's going to cut me out of the shot. And he goes, ah, I don't know about the nod. Pablo's like, that's all right. We got a version without the nod. And he's like, okay, all right, great. All right, move on. And that was it. And so then they put the version with no nod and, <laughs> and he made it. So that's my... That's my one thing. But if you look through, especially Phantom Menace, I'm sure there's there's examples in the other two um, that I'm less aware of, but all through Phantom Menace, like Padme's funeral, and you're panning past all these faces of sad Nabooians. Those are all ILMers. Um, <laughs> there's well, I've, I've spotted John John Knoll as a, an X-Wing, and now Dave Filoni's been an X-Wing. Yeah, that's right. And quite a few of the directors were X-Wings in the, in the uh, pilots in the yeah. first season of Man Mandalorian. Yeah, Rick and Deb both are in there. Yeah. I, I'm remarkably stiff on camera. Acting. Like this kind of thing, like talking to people. Like I can give talks to crowds of people. That doesn't bother me at all. I'm totally fine. But uh, doing a sort of predetermined or scripted thing in front of the camera, I'm terrible at. Um, <laughs> I just, I think I'm very self-conscious. So I don't volunteer for things where like, for instance, I'd have to actually say a line or something like that. But, oh, here's another one in, uh, it's not Star Wars. In Pacific Rim, there's a scene early in the film where there's a father and son or a grandfather and son on the beach with a metal detector and out of the fog stumbles Gypsy Danger all damaged from its fight with Knifehead and, and it falls, collapses on the beach. And there's a big wide shot right when Gypsy appears that uh, either was a late addition or for some reason, I think that the plate they had of the actors, they, they weren't reacting enough for how massive this thing is. Yeah, yeah. So I said, my son was the right age at the time. I said, you know, send us the costumes. We'll, we'll shoot a new element here. So that one wide where the figures are really tiny down at the left side of the screen with this huge Gypsy danger, uh, that's my son and I in the costume. <laughs> That's my other. Uh... Oh, and I'm the guy when Gypsy's first coming out in the opening scene and is on the big treaded crawler thing, pulling it out. I'm the dude with the lighted wands up on the thing going like this. Uh, oh, so right. Wow. Cool. Well, that's pretty, that's pretty cool. So the last one then, and this is probably the most crucial of them all, because I'm sure you have lots of toys. Yes, I do. So the first part is, um, where do you have the most toys? Is it in your office at ILM or is it in the house? Yeah, the office. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I think a lot of us get our toys relegated to the office at the earliest. I've got boxes of them in the loft that I'm just waiting for an office. Same. And now I have to work at home. It's probably never going to happen. So yep. yeah, assuming that 
there are no people or animals nearby that need your help, but the place is burning down. What toy do you go back and rescue? Uh, there's two things I would grab. One is a figure that my brother bought me for Christmas ages ago when I still lived in Portland. And it's he found it in a junk shop. And it's a weird, creepy looking dude in a chair, some kind of doll that kind of semi-decayed and slumped over in this wooden chair. It's really weird looking. And it, but it's a complete accident. It wasn't made to look creepy. It just ended up looking creepy. My brother gave me that for Christmas one year and I adore it. So that would be, I'd have to grab that. Yeah. And I would grab the framed letter, the George letter off the of wall. Of course. Everything Excellent. else I'd have to let go, but uh, those are the two things. <clears throat> and, that, and that brings us full circle. Yeah, there we go. Which exactly. is kind of perfect. And it means you can get on with your day and um, I can... It's a lot more fun though. I'd rather yeah. do this. Cool. <laughs> Excellent. Well, that's it for this episode. I'm afraid if you haven't already, please check out part one or other episodes in the series. Journalists, photographers, artists, anyone committed to creativity and making things. Again, I hope it was worth your time. Remember and share the life out of it. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn and most importantly, the website playfulcommunications.co.uk home to Made on a Mobile where you can join the mobile revolution and learn to shoot, edit and share. A smartphone or a tablet is all you need. Look out for another pod very soon, but for now, comment, like, subscribe. Subscribe.